Principle 1. It is the unchangeable law of God that wicked people must turn or die. If you will believe God, believe this. There is only one of these two ways for every wicked person, either conversion or damnation. I know that the wicked will hardly be convinced either of the truth or fairness of this. It is no wonder if the guilty quarrel with the law. Few people are inclined to believe that which they do not want to be true, and even fewer want that to be true that they perceive is against them. However, arguing with the law or with the judge will not save the wrongdoer. Believing and following the law might have prevented his death, but denying and accusing it will only hasten it. If it were not so, a hundred people would bring their reason against the law for every person who would bring his reason to the law, and people would rather choose to give their reasons why they should not be punished than to hear the commands and reasons of their leaders that require them to obey. The law was not made for you to judge, but that you might be ruled and judged by it. But if there is anyone so blind as to try to question either the truth or the justice of this law of God, I will briefly give you that evidence of both which I think should satisfy a reasonable person. 1. If you doubt whether this is the word of God or not, besides a hundred other texts, you may be satisfied by these few. Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verse 3. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, verse 3. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Colossians 3, verses 9-10 through 10. Follow holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 14 So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans 8, verses 8 through 9. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Galatians 6, verse 15. According to his abundant mercy, he hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Psalm 9, verse 17. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked his soul hateth. Psalm 11, verse 5. As I do not need to explain these texts that are so plain, 
so I do not think I need to add any of the many other similar verses. If you are someone who believes the Word of God, this is already enough to satisfy you that the wicked must be either converted or condemned. You are already convinced that you must either confess that this is true or plainly say that you will not believe the Word of God. Once you come to the point where you will not believe the clear Word of God, there is not much hope for you. Look to yourself as well as you can, for it is likely you will soon be in hell. You would be ready to quickly oppose someone who would lie to you, and yet you dare to lie about God? However, if you plainly tell God that you will not believe Him, do not blame Him if He never warns you any more, or if He forsakes you and gives you up as hopeless. For what good would it do to warn you if you will not believe Him? Even if He would send an angel from heaven to you, it seems you would not believe. For an angel can only speak the word of God, and if an angel would bring you any other gospel, you are not to receive it, but are to let him be accursed. Galatians 1 verse 8. Certainly no angel is to be believed before the Son of God, who came from the Father to bring us this doctrine. If he is not to be believed, then all the angels in heaven are not to be believed. If these are the terms on which you stand with God, I will leave you until he deals with you in a more convincing way. God has a voice that will make you hear. Although he urges you to hear the voice of his gospel, he will make you hear the voice of his condemning sentence without a request. We cannot make you believe against your wills, but God will make you see against your wills. Let us hear what reason you have why you will not believe this verse from God's word that tells us that the wicked must be either converted or condemned. I know your reason. It is because you think it is unlikely that God would be so unmerciful. You think it is cruelty to condemn people everlastingly for such a small thing as a sinful life. This leads us to the next point. 2. The fairness of God in His laws and judgments is justified. First, I do not think you will deny that it is most appropriate for an immortal soul to be ruled by laws that promise an immortal reward and threaten an endless punishment. Otherwise, the law would not be suited to the nature of the subject, who will not be fully ruled by any lower means than the hopes or fears of everlasting things. As it is in cases of worldly punishment, if a law were now made that the most heinous crimes would be punished with a hundred years' captivity, this might be of some effectiveness, since the number of years is roughly equal to the years of our lives. But if there had been no other penalties before the flood, when people lived eight or nine hundred years, it would not have been sufficient, because people would know that they might have many hundred years of impunity afterwards. It is the same in our present situation. Second, I suppose that you will admit that the promise of endless and inconceivable glory is not inappropriate to the wisdom of God, or the case of man. So why, then, would you not think the same of the promise of endless and unspeakable misery? Third, when you find it in the word of God that this is so, for so it is, do you think yourselves proper judges to contradict this truth? Will you call your Maker to the judgment seat? and examine his word upon the accusation of falsehood. Will you sit over him and judge him by the law of your pride, 
Are you wiser, better, and more righteous than he? Must the God of heaven come to you to learn wisdom? Must infinite wisdom learn of folly, and infinite goodness be corrected by a sinner who cannot keep himself pure and sinless for an hour? Must the Almighty stand at the judgment seat of a worm? O oh, horrid arrogancy of senseless dust! Will a mole, or clump of dirt, or a dunghill accuse the sun of darkness and try to illuminate the world? Where were you when the Almighty made the laws without seeking your guidance? Surely he made them before you were born, and without desiring your advice. You came into the world too late to reverse them. If you could have done so great a work, you should have stepped out of your nothingness and contradicted Christ when he was on earth, or Moses before him, or saved Adam and his sinful descendants from the threatened death so there might have been no need of Christ. What if God would withdraw his patience and sustaining power and let you drop into hell while you are arguing with his word? Will you then believe that there is a hell? Fourth, if sin is such an evil that it requires the death of Christ for its atonement, it is no wonder that it deserves our everlasting misery. Fifth, if the sin of demons deserves endless torment, why not also the sin of men? Sixth, I think you should understand that it is not possible for the best of people, much less for the wicked, to be competent judges of what is deserved for sin. We are both blind and partial. You can never fully know what sin deserves until you fully know the evil of sin, and you can never fully know the evil of sin until you fully know a. the excellency of the soul that it damages, b. the excellency of holiness that it obliterates, c. the reason and excellency of the law that it violates, d. the excellency of the glory that it despises, e. the excellency and office of reason that it treads down, f. the infinite excellency almightiness, and holiness of that God against whom it is committed. When you fully know all these, you will fully know what sin deserves. Besides, you know that the offender is too partial to judge the law or the proceedings of his judge. We judge by feeling, which blinds our reason. In ordinary worldly things, we see that most people think that their own cause is right and that whatever goes against them is wrong. It is in vain for even their most wise, just, or impartial friends to try to persuade them to the contrary. There are few children who do not think the father is unmerciful or deals harshly with them if he punishes them. There is hardly the vilest wretch who does not think that the church has done wrong if they excommunicate him. There is hardly a thief or murderer who is to be hanged who would not accuse the law and judge of cruelty if doing so would benefit them. Seventh, can you think that unholy souls should be in heaven? They cannot love God here, or do Him any service that He can accept. They are contrary to God. They despise that which He most loves, and love that which He hates. They are incapable of that imperfect communion with Him, 
that his saints partake of here. How then can they live in that perfect love of him and full delight and communion with him that is the blessedness of heaven? You do not accuse yourselves of not being unmerciful if you do not make your enemy your closest adviser, or if you do not allow your swine to live in your house with you, or even if you take away its life, although it never sinned. Yet you will blame the Supreme Lord, the most wise and gracious sovereign of the world, if he condemns the unconverted to perpetual misery. I ask you now, all you who love your souls, that instead of quarreling with God and with His Word, you will receive it now and use it for your good. All you who are still unconverted accept this as the irrefutable truth of God. Before long you must be either converted or condemned. There is no other way but to turn or die. When God who cannot lie, Titus 1 verse 2, Hebrews 6.18, has told you this, when you hear it from the Maker and Judge of the world, then it is time for those who have ears to hear. By this time you may see what you have to trust to. You are just dead and condemned people unless you will be converted. If I would tell you otherwise, I would be deceiving you with a lie. If I would hide this from you, I would be doing you harm and would be guilty of your blood, as the verses preceding my next text assure me. When I say to the wicked man, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Ezekiel 33, verse 8. You see, then, that although this is a rough and unwelcome doctrine, it is one that we must preach, and one that you must hear. It is easier to hear of hell than to feel it. If your necessities did not require it, we would not bother your tender ears with truths that seem so harsh and grievous. Hell would not be so full if people were only willing to know their situation and to hear and think of it. The reason why so few escape it is because they do not strive to enter in at the straight gate of conversion, Luke 13, verse 24 and pursue the narrow way of holiness while they have time. Isaiah 35, verse 8, Matthew 7, verse 14. They do not strive because they are not awakened to an active feeling of the danger they are in, and they are not awakened because they are reluctant to hear or think of it. That is partly through foolish sensitivity and carnal self-love, and partly because they do not really believe the message from God that tells of these truths. If you will not completely believe this truth, I think that the significance of it should force you to remember it, and it should stay with you and give you no rest until you are converted. You must be converted or condemned. Turn or die. If you had only once heard this message from the voice of an angel, would it not sink into your mind and torment you night and day? In your sinning you would remember it, as if the voice were still in your ears, Turn or die! Your soul would be happy if it could work with you in this way, and never be forgotten, and would never leave you alone until it has driven your heart home to God. However, if you will cast it out by forgetfulness or unbelief, 
How can it work to bring about your conversion and salvation? Remember this to your sorrow. Although you may put this out of your mind, you cannot put it out of the Bible. It will stand there as a sealed truth that you will know by experience forever that there is no other way but to turn or die. Oh, why are the hearts of sinners not pierced with such a solemn truth? We would think now that every unconverted person who hears these words would be pricked to the heart and think within himself, this is my own situation, and never stop until he found himself converted. You may rightly believe that this drowsy, careless attitude will not last long. Conversion and condemnation are both awakening things, and you will experience one of them before long. As truly as if I saw it with my own eyes, I can predict that either grace or hell will soon bring these matters to the point, and will make you say, What have I done? What a foolish, wicked path I have taken! The scornful and foolish state of sinners will only last a little while. As soon as they either turn or die, the foolhardy dream will be at an end, and then their senses and feeling will return. I foresee two things that are likely to harden the unconverted and make me lose all my labor unless they can be taken out of the way, and that is the misunderstanding of those two words, the wicked and turn. Some will think within themselves, it is true that the wicked must turn or die, but that is not relevant to me. I am not wicked, even though I am a sinner, as all people are. Others will think, it is true that we must turn from our evil ways, but I turned a long time ago. I have hoped that I do not need to do this now. And so while wicked people think they are not wicked, but are already converted, we lose all our labor in trying to persuade them to turn. Therefore, before I go any further, I will tell you here who are meant by the wicked, or who must turn or die. I will also explain what is meant by turning, or who are truly converted. I have purposely reserved this for this place, referring the method that fits my purpose. Who are the wicked, and what does it mean to turn? One. You may observe here that in the sense of the text, a wicked person and a converted person are contraries. No person who is converted is a wicked person, and no person who is wicked is a converted person. To be a wicked person and to be an unconverted person is the same. Therefore, in dealing with one, we will deal with both. Before I can tell you what either wickedness or conversion is, I must get back to the basics and take up the matter from the beginning. It pleased the great creator of the world to make three types of living creatures. He made angels, pure spirits without flesh, and therefore he made them only for heaven and not to dwell on earth. Animals were made flesh without immortal souls, and therefore they were made only for earth and not for heaven. Man is of a middle nature, between both, as partaking of both flesh and spirit, and therefore he was made for both heaven and earth. However, as his flesh is made simply to be a servant to his spirit, so he is made for earth simply as his passage or way to heaven, and not that this should be his home or happiness. 
The blessed state that man was made for was to behold the glorious majesty of the Lord and to praise him among his holy angels, to love him and to be filled with his love forever. Since this was the purpose for which man was made, God gave him the means that were appropriate for him to attain it. These means were principally two. One, the proper inclination and disposition of the mind of man, and two, the proper ordering of his life and practice. For the first, God adapted the disposition of man unto his purpose, giving him such knowledge of God as was appropriate for his present state, as well as a heart that was disposed and inclined to God in holy love. However, he did not secure or confirm him in this condition, but, having made him a free agent, he allowed him to exercise his own free will. For the second, God did that which belonged to him. That is, he gave him a perfect law that required him to continue in the love of God and to perfectly obey him. By the deliberate transgression of this law, man not only forfeited his hope of everlasting life, but he also turned his heart from God and set it on these lower things of the flesh. In doing so, he blotted out the spiritual image of God from his soul. Man fell short of the glory of God, which was his purpose, and also took himself out of the way by which he could have attained it. And he did so as to the condition of both his heart and his life. He lost the holy inclination and love of his soul to God, replacing it with an inclination and love to please his flesh or carnal self by earthly things growing unfamiliar to God and familiar with the creature. The direction of his life was suited to the bent and inclination of his heart. He did not live for God, but lived for his carnal self. He sought to please his flesh instead of seeking to please the Lord. We are all now born into the world with this nature or corrupt inclination. For who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Job 14, verse 4. As a lion has a fierce and cruel nature before it devours, and an adder has a venomous nature before it bites, so in our infancy we have those sinful natures or tendencies before we think or speak or do wrong. All the sin of our lives springs from this, and not only so, but when God from His mercy has provided us a solution, even the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of our souls and to bring us back to God again, we naturally love our current condition and are reluctant to be brought out of it. Therefore we are set against the means of our recovery. Although custom has taught us to thank Christ for His goodwill, our carnal self convinces us to refuse His solution and to desire to be excused when we are commanded to take the remedy that He offers and to forsake all and follow Him to God and glory. I urge you to read over this section again and pay attention to it, for in these few words you have a true description of our natural condition and consequently of a wicked person. For every person who is in the state of corrupt nature is a wicked person and is in a state of death. What does it mean to be converted? 
2. Now you are prepared to understand what it means to be converted. To this end you must also know that God in His mercy, not willing that man should perish in his sins, provided a solution by causing His Son to take our nature. And being in one person God and man to become a mediator between God and man. By dying for our sins on the cross, He ransomed us from the curse of God and the power of the devil. Having thus redeemed us, the Father has delivered us into His hands as His own. In doing so, the Father and the Mediator made a new law and covenant for man, not like the first, which gave life to none except the perfectly obedient, and which condemned man for every sin. But Christ has made a law of grace, or a promise of pardon and everlasting life, to all who by true repentance and by faith in Christ are converted unto God, like an act of amnesty that is made by a prince to a group of rebels on condition that they will lay down their arms and come in and be loyal subjects from then on. However, because the Lord knows that the heart of man is so wicked, that despite all this people will not accept the remedy if they are left to themselves, therefore the Holy Spirit has undertaken it as His role to inspire the apostles, to seal the Scriptures by miracles and wonders, and to illuminate and convert the souls of the elect. By this you can see that as there are three persons in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so each of these persons have their specific works that are prominently connected to them. The Father's works were to create us, to rule us as His rational creatures by the law of nature, and to judge us by that law to provide us a Redeemer in His mercy when we were lost, and to send His Son and accept His ransom. The works of the Son for us were to ransom and redeem us by His sufferings and righteousness, to give out the promise or law of grace, and to rule and judge the world as the Redeemer on those terms of grace, to make intercession for us so that the benefits of His death may be imparted, and to send the Holy Spirit which the Father also does by the Son. The works of the Holy Spirit for us are to compose the Holy Scriptures by inspiring and guiding the prophets and apostles, by sealing the Word by His miraculous gifts and works, by enlightening and inspiring the ordinary ministers of the gospel, and so enabling them and helping them to proclaim that Word, and by the same Word, to enlighten and convert the souls of men. Just as you could not have been intelligent creatures if the Father had not created you, nor could you have had any access to God if the Son had not redeemed you, so neither can you have a part in Christ or be saved unless the Holy Spirit sanctifies you. By now you may see the different details of this work. The Father sends the Son the Son redeems us and makes the promise of grace. The Holy Spirit composes and seals this gospel. The apostles are the secretaries of the Spirit to write it. The preachers of the gospel proclaim it and persuade people to obey it. And the Holy Spirit makes their preaching effective by opening people's hearts to contemplate it. All this is to repair the image of God upon the soul, to set the heart upon God again, and to take it off the creature and carnal self to which it revolted 
thereby turning the direction of the life into a heavenly path that before was earthly. This is all done through embracing Christ by faith, for He is the physician of the soul. By what I have said, you may see what it means to be wicked and what it means to be converted. I think this will be even more clear to you if I describe them as consisting of their various parts. A wicked person may be known by these three things. One, he is one who places his main affections on earth. He loves the creature more than God, and his fleshly prosperity above heavenly joy. He savors the things of the flesh, but neither discerns nor savors the things of the Spirit. Although he will say that heaven is better than earth, yet he does not really regard it as such to himself. If he could be sure of earth, he would let go of heaven, and he would rather stay here than be taken there. A life of perfect holiness in the sight of God, dwelling in his love and praising him forever in heaven, is not as pleasing to his heart as a life of health, wealth, and honor here upon earth. Although he falsely professes that he loves God above everything else, yet indeed he never felt the power of divine love within him. But his mind is more set on the world or fleshly pleasures than on God. In a word, whoever loves earth above heaven and fleshly prosperity more than God is a wicked, unconverted person. On the other hand, a converted person is enlightened to discern the loveliness of God. He so much believes the glory that is to be had with God that his heart is taken up with it and focused more upon it than on anything in this world. He would rather see the face of God and live in his everlasting love and praises than to have all the wealth or pleasures of the world. He sees that everything else is vanity and that nothing can fill the soul except God. Therefore, no matter which way the world goes, he lays up his treasures and hope in heaven, and for that he is resolved to let everything else go. As the fire ascends upward, and the needle of the compass turns to the north, so the converted soul is inclined unto God. Nothing else can satisfy him, nor can he be content or find any rest except in his love. In a word, all who are converted esteem and love God more than all the world, and the heavenly joy is dearer to them than their worldly prosperity. The proof of what I have said may be found in the following passages of Scripture, Philippians 3, verses 8 through 10, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, Romans 8, verses 5 through 9, 18, 23, and Psalm 73, verses 25 through 26. Second, a wicked person is one who makes it the main business of his life to prosper in the world and attain his worldly goals. Although he may read, hear, and do much in the outward duties of religion and refrain from disgraceful sins, yet this is all in passing, and he never makes it the main business of his life to please God and attain everlasting glory. Rather, he tries to appease God with the scraps of the world, and gives him no more service than the flesh can spare, for he will not part with all of it for heaven. 
On the contrary, a converted person is one who makes it the main care and business of his life to please God and to be saved, and takes all the blessings of this life only as that which helps him on his journey toward another life. He uses what he has in subjection to God. He loves a holy life and desires to be more holy. He has no sin that he does not hate, and he longs and prays and strives to be rid of it. The direction and leaning of his life is for God, and if he sins, it is contrary to the very inclination of his heart and life. Therefore he rises again and laments it, and dares not intentionally live in any known sin. There is nothing in this world so dear to him that he cannot give it up to God and forsake it for him and the hope of glory. You may see all this in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 5, Matthew 6, verses 20 and 33, Luke 12, verse 21, Luke 18, verses 22 and 23 and 29, Luke 14, verses 18, 24, and 26 through 27, Romans 8, 13. Galatians 5, verse 24, etc. And third, the soul of a wicked person never truly discerned and cherished the mystery of redemption, nor thankfully welcomed an offered Savior. Nor is he consumed with the love of the Redeemer, nor willing to be ruled by him as the physician of his soul, so that he may be saved from the guilt and power of his sins and restored to God. His heart is indifferent of this unspeakable benefit and is quiet against the healing means by which he should be restored. Although he may be willing to be outwardly religious, yet he never surrendered his soul to Christ and to the motions and conduct of his word and spirit. On the contrary, the converted soul, having felt himself ruined by sin, perceiving that he has lost his peace with God and the hope of heaven, and knowing that he is in danger of everlasting misery, thankfully welcomes the tidings of redemption. Believing in the Lord Jesus as his only Savior, he surrenders himself to him for wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 He takes Christ as the life of his soul. He lives by him and uses him as a salve for every wound admiring the wisdom and love of God in his wonderful work of man's redemption. In a word, Christ dwells in his heart by faith, and the life that he now lives is by the faith of the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. Yes, it is not so much he who lives as Christ who lives in him. This can be seen in passages such as John 1, 11-12, John 3, verses 19 and 20. John 15, verses 2 through 4, Romans 8, 9, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30, and 2, verse 2, Galatians 2, verse 20, and Philippians 3, verses 7 through 10. You see now, in plain terms, from the word of God, who are the wicked and who are the converted. Ignorant people think that if a person is not a swearer, a curser, a complainer, a drunkard, a fornicator, or an extortioner, if he deals honestly in his business, and if he goes to church and says his prayers, he cannot be a wicked person. Or they think that if someone who has been guilty of drunkenness, swearing, gambling, or similar vices simply abstains from them for now, they think this is a converted person, 
others think if someone who has been an enemy of and ridiculed godliness now approves of it, joins himself to those who are godly, and is hated for it by the wicked as the godly are, that this person must be converted. Some people are so foolish as to think that they are converted by taking up some new and false belief and joining with some fragmented religious group. Some people think that if they have simply been alarmed by the fears of hell and have had convictions of conscience and thereupon have purposed and promised to change their lives and have taken up a life of civil behavior and outward religion, that this must be true conversion. These are the poor, misguided, and deceived souls who are likely to lose the benefit of all our attempts to persuade them to the truth. When they hear that the wicked must turn or die, they think that this is not spoken to them, for they do not think they are wicked, but have turned already. This is why Christ told some of the rulers of the Jews who were more solemn and ceremonial than the common people that publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before them. Matthew 21, verse 31. It is not that a prostitute or flagrant sinner can be saved without conversion, but Jesus said this because it was easier to make these flagrant sinners realize their sin and misery and the necessity of a change than the more formal type of people who deceive themselves by thinking that they are converted already when they are not. O oh, reader, conversion is another kind of work than most are aware of. It is not a small matter to bring a worldly mind to heaven and to show man the gracious excellence of God until he is taken up in such love to him that it can never be quenched. It is not a small matter to break the heart for sin and to cause him to run for refuge to Christ and thankfully embrace him as the life of his soul. It is not a small matter to have the very direction and inclination of the heart and life changed so that a person renounces that which he took for his happiness and places his joy where he never did before, so that he does not live for the same purpose as he formerly did, and is not motivated by the same ways of the world as he formerly was. In a word, he who is in Christ is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 He has a new understanding, a new will, and a new purpose. He has new sorrows, new desires, new love, and new delight. He has new thoughts, new speeches, new company, if possible, and new conversation. Sin, that before was a joking matter with him, is now so abhorrent and terrible to him that he runs from it as from death. The world that was so lovely in his eyes now appears to him as emptiness and aggravation. God, who was before neglected, is now the only happiness of his soul. Before he was forgotten, and every lust and desire was preferred before him. But now he is set next to the heart, and all things must give place to him. The heart is absorbed with listening to and obeying him. It is grieved when he hides his face, and never thinks itself well without him. Christ himself, whom before he never thought much about, is now his only hope and refuge, and he lives upon him as on his daily bread. He cannot pray without him, 
nor rejoice without him, nor think, speak, or live without him. Heaven itself, that before was looked upon only as a tolerable substitute, which he hoped might be more pleasing to him than hell when he could no longer stay in the world, is now taken for his home, the place of his only hope and rest, where he will see, love, and praise that God who already has his heart. Hell, that before seemed only as a threat to frighten people from sin, now appears to be a real misery that is not to be ventured on or joked about. The works of holiness of which he was weary before and which he thought were unnecessary are now both his recreation and his business. The Bible, which was before to him almost as a common book, is now as the law of God, as a letter written to him from heaven and signed with the name of the Eternal Majesty. It is the standard of his thoughts, words, and deeds. The commands are binding, the threats are fearful, and the promises of it speak life to his soul. The godly, who seem to him just like other people, are now the most excellent and happy people on earth. The wicked, who were his close friends, are now his grief. He who could laugh at their sins is more ready now to weep for their sin and misery and to say with those of old, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent, in whom is all my delight. Psalm 16, verse 3. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoureth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. Psalm 15, verse 4. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Philippians 3, verse 18. In short, he has a new purpose in his thoughts, and a new way in his work, and therefore his heart and life are new. Before his carnal self was his purpose, and his pleasure and worldly profit and credit were his way. Now God and everlasting glory are his purpose, and Christ, the Spirit, God's Word, his ordinances, holiness to God, righteousness, and mercy to others are his way. Before self was the main ruler to which the matters of God in conscience must bow and yield. Now God in Christ, by the Spirit, Word, and ministry, is the main ruler, to whom both self and all the matters of self must yield. This is not a change in one, two, or twenty points, but in the whole soul, and in the very purpose and leaning of one's life. A person may step out of one path into another, yet have his face pointing the same way, and be still going toward the same place. But it is another matter entirely to turn completely around and take a journey in the opposite way to a completely different place. That is the case here. A person may turn from drunkenness, forsake other blatant, disgraceful sins, and practice some duties of religion, yet still be going the same way as before, loving his carnal self above all, and still giving it the dominion of his soul. However, when he is converted, this self is denied and taken down, and God is set up. The converted person's face is turned the opposite way, and he who before was addicted to himself and lived to himself is now by sanctification devoted to God and lives unto God.
before he asked himself what he should do with his time, his talents, and his possessions, and he used them for himself. Now he asks God what he should do with them, and he uses them for him. Before he would try to impress God only as far as my degree with the pleasures of his flesh and carnal self, but not to any great displeasure of them. Now he desires to please God no matter how much his flesh and self might be displeased. This is the great change that God will make upon all who will be saved. You can say that the Holy Spirit is our sanctifier, but do you know what sanctification is? This is what I have now explained to you, and every man and woman in the world must have this, or they will be condemned to everlasting misery. They must turn or die. Do you believe all this, or do you not? Surely you dare not say that you do not, for it is past all doubt or denial. These are not differences of opinion where one educated, pious person is of one mind and another person is of another mind, or where one person says this and the other person says that. Every group among us that deserves to be called Christians are all agreed in what I have said. And if you will not believe the God of truth, and that in a case where every group and party believes him, you are entirely inexcusable. But if you do believe this, how is it that you live so quietly in an unconverted state? Do you think that you are converted? Can you find this wonderful change upon your souls? Have you been born again and made new? Are not these strange matters to many of you, and things that you never felt within yourselves? You cannot tell the day or week of your change or the very sermon that converted you. Yet do you find that the work is done, that there is indeed such a change, and that you have such hearts as are before described? Sadly, most people follow their worldly business and do not trouble their minds with such thoughts. If they merely keep themselves from scandalous sins and can say, I am not immoral, nor a thief, nor a cursor, nor a swearer, nor an alcoholic, nor an extortioner, I go to church and say my prayers. They think that this is true conversion, and that they will be saved as well as any. No, you are foolishly cheating yourselves. This is too much contempt of endless glory, and too glaring neglect of your immortal souls. Can you make such light of heaven and hell? Your body will soon lie in the dust and angels or demons will soon seize upon your souls. Every person reading this will soon be among other company and in another situation than they now are. You will dwell in these houses only a little longer. You will work in your shops and fields only a little longer. You will sit in these seats and dwell on this earth only a little longer. You will see with these eyes, hear with these ears, and speak with these tongues only a little longer, until the resurrection day. And do you try to get these thoughts out of your minds so as not to have to think about these truths? Oh, what a place you will soon be in of either joy or torment! Oh, what a sight you will soon see in either heaven or hell! Oh! What thoughts will soon fill your hearts with unspeakable delight or unspeakable horror? What work you will soon be employed in either to praise the Lord with saints and angels 
or to cry out with demons in unquenchable fire. Should all this be forgotten, this will all be endless and will be sealed up by an unchangeable decree. Eternity will be the measure of your joys or sorrows. And can this be forgotten? This is all true, most certainly true. When you have gone up and down a little longer, and slept and awakened a few more times, you will be dead and gone, and you will find all that I now tell you to be true. Can you forget these things now? You will then remember that you had this call, and that this day, in this place, you were reminded of these things, and you will perceive them to be matters of a thousand times more importance than either you or I could imagine here. Yet will they now be so much forgotten? Beloved friends, if the Lord had not awakened me to believe and take these things to heart myself, I would have remained in a dark and selfish state, and would have perished forever. But since He has truly made me aware of them, it will compel me to be sympathetic toward you as well as to myself. If your eyes were so far opened as to see hell, and you saw your neighbors who were unconverted dragged there with hideous cries, even though they were people whom you considered to be honest people on earth, and who themselves feared no such danger, such a sight would make you go home and think about it, and think again, and would make you warn everyone around you, as that lost man of the world desired to do who wanted to warn his brothers, so that they did not end up in that place of torment. Luke 16, verse 28. Faith is a kind of sight. It is the eye of the soul, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11, verse 1. If I believe God, it is next to seeing, and therefore I ask you to excuse me if I am half as earnest with you about these matters as if I had seen them. If I must die tomorrow, and it were in my power to come again from another world and tell you what I had seen, and would you not consider and believe what I would tell you? If I could preach one sermon to you after I am dead, after I have seen what is done in the world to come, would you not want me to plainly speak the truth? Would you not crowd round me to hear me? And would you not take my words to heart? However, this will not happen. God has His appointed way of teaching you by Scripture and ministers, and He will not cater to unbelievers so far as to send people from the dead to them and change His established way. If any man disapproves of the Son, God will not indulge him so far as to set up a clearer light. Friends, I plead with you to regard me now as you would do if I would come back from the dead to you, for I can give you as full assurance of the truth of what I say to you as if I had been there and had seen it with my eyes. It is possible for someone from the dead to deceive you, but Jesus Christ can never deceive you. The Word of God, delivered in Scripture and sealed by miracles and holy workings of the Spirit, can never deceive you. Believe this, or believe nothing. Believe and obey this, or you are done for. If ever you would believe the Word of God, and if ever you would care for the salvation of your souls, let me beg of you this reasonable request, and I plead with you to hear me. Remember what has been said. Earnestly search your hearts and say to yourselves the following. 
Is this indeed true? Must I turn or die? Must I be converted or condemned? It is time for me, then, to look around me before it is too late. Oh, why did I not look into this before now? Why did I foolishly avoid or ignore so great a matter? Was I awake or in my senses? Oh, blessed God, what a mercy is it that you did not cut off my life all this time before I had any certain hope of eternal life. God forbid that I should neglect this work any longer. What state is my soul in? Am I converted or am I not? Was ever such a change or work done upon my soul? Have I been enlightened by the word and spirit of the Lord to see the abhorrence of sin, the need of a Savior, the love of Christ, and the excellences of God and glory? Is my heart broken or humbled within me because of my former life? Have I thankfully cherished my Savior and Lord, who offered himself with pardon and life for my soul? Do I hate my former sinful life and the remnant of every sin that is in me? Do I flee from them as my deadly enemies? Do I give myself up to a life of holiness and obedience to God? Do I love it and delight in it? Can I truly say that I am dead to the world and carnal self, and that I live for God and the glory that He has promised? Does heaven have more of my esteem and affection than earth? Is God dearest and highest in my soul? I am sure that I once lived mainly for the world and the flesh, and that I gave God nothing except some heartless services that could be spared from the world and that were the leftovers of the flesh. Is my heart now turned another way? Do I have a new direction and a new purpose and a new course of holy desires and habits? Have I set my hope and heart in heaven? Is it the purpose, goal, and intent of my heart to get well to heaven, to see the glorious face of God, and to live in His everlasting love and praise? When I sin, is it against the normal inclination and desire of my heart? Do I conquer all obvious sins, and am I weary and willing to be rid of my weaknesses? This is the condition of converted souls. This is how it must be with me, or I will perish. Is it really this way with me, or is it not? It is time to get this doubt resolved before the dreadful judge resolves it. I am not such a stranger to my own heart and life that I cannot somewhat recognize whether I am thus converted or not. If I am not, it will not do me any good to flatter my soul with false conceits and hopes. I am resolved to deceive myself no longer but to strive to truly know whether I am converted or not, so that if I am, I may rejoice in it, glorify my gracious Lord, and comfortably go on until I reach the crown. And if I am not, that I may set myself to beg and seek after the grace that would convert me, that I may turn to Christ without any more delay. If I find out that I am not on the narrow way, then by the help of Christ I may turn and find new life. But if I remain as I am until either my heart is forsaken of God in blindness and hardness, or until I am carried away by death, then it is too late. There is no place for repentance and conversion then. 
I know it must be now or never. It is my request to you that you will simply take a close look at your heart and examine it until you see, if you can, whether you are converted or not. If you cannot find it out by your own endeavors, then go to your minister if he is a faithful and experienced man and ask for his assistance. The matter is of utmost importance. Do not let timidity or carelessness hinder you. Godly ministers are set over you to advise you for the saving of your souls, just as physicians advise you for the curing of your bodies. Many thousands of people are eternally ruined because they think they are in the way to salvation when they are not, and they think they are converted when they have not been. Then when we call to them daily to turn, they go away as they came, thinking that this does not concern them. They think they are turned already, and they hope they will do well enough in the way that they are in, at least if they pick the most pleasant path and avoid some of the crooked steps, when sadly, all this time, they live only to the world and flesh and are strangers to God and eternal life, and they are quite far from the way to heaven. This is all because we cannot convince them to spend a little time seriously thinking about their condition and to spend a few hours examining their situation. Are there not many self-deceivers who hear me this day who have never spent one hour, or even a quarter of an hour, in all their lives, examining their souls, to try to determine whether they are truly converted or not? Oh, what a merciful God who will care for such wretches who do not care more for themselves! who will do so much to save them from hell and help them to heaven, who will do so little for it themselves. If all who are on the way to hell and in the state of damnation only knew it, they would not dare to continue in it. The greatest hope that the devil has of bringing you to damnation without being rescued is by keeping you blindfolded and ignorant of your condition and making you believe that you may do well enough by continuing in the way that you are now in. If you knew that you were not in the path to heaven, but were lost forever if you would die as you are, would you dare to sleep another night in that condition? Would you dare to live another day in it? Could you cheerfully laugh or be happy in such a condition, not knowing if you will be taken away to hell in an hour? Certainly it would constrain you to forsake your former company and direction and to commit yourselves to the ways of holiness and the communion of the saints. Certainly it would drive you to cry out to God for a new heart and to seek help from those who are capable of giving you wise counsel. Certainly you care that you are condemned and damned to hell. Well, then, I urge you to immediately make inquiry into your heart. Give it no rest until you find out your condition, so that if it is good, you may rejoice in it and continue in it, and if it is bad, you may immediately seek for salvation, as people who believe they must turn or die. What do you say? Will you resolve and promise to take this much labor for your own soul Will you now enter upon this self-examination? Is my request unreasonable? Your conscience knows it is not. Resolve then before you move to examine yourself, knowing how much it concerns your soul, 
I urge you, for the sake of that God who commands you, at whose judgment seat you will soon appear, that you do not deny me this reasonable request. For the sake of your soul that must turn or die, I ask you not to deny me this request, but make it your business to understand your own condition and build upon solid ground. Determine to know whether you are truly converted or not, and do not risk your soul on a false sense of security. Maybe you will say, What if we find ourselves still unconverted? What do we do then? This question leads me to my second principle, which will do much to answer this question, and to which I now proceed.